Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 252. On today's show, I talk to Elizabeth Bacuadano and Susan Milbrath about their new edited volume about birds and beasts and their symbolism in ancient Mesoamerica. Let's dig a little deeper, but without Rachel. <laughs> welcome to the show, everyone. It's just me today. Rachel can't make this recording, but we have... Another, just like we did a couple of weeks ago, we have another book review, sort of, except with the authors, or at least the editors, as they say in academic circles. I mean, people still do author books, but a lot of times you see these edited volumes where several people or one person even, you know, basically contacts a bunch of other people and says, hey, we want to talk about this. And a number of chapters are written by different people. So that's what we're going to talk about today. The book today is called Birds and Beasts of Ancient Mesoamerica, Animal Symbolism in the Post-Classic Period. And there is a link to this in the show notes. You can find it at University Press of Colorado. More than likely, at some point, you can find it on Amazon and other places, too. I mean, Amazon pretty much has everything. So, But University Press of Colorado is where this was published. So let me introduce to the show, then. We've got Susan Milbrath and Elizabeth Bacadano. Welcome to the show, ladies. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Thank you. All right. So we'll leave your guys's profile information, your bios, if anybody's interested in hearing more about them, we'll have that in the show notes. I just want to use our time to go straight into the book. So will one of you guys give us the the overall highlights on what this book is about? Well, the, the book is about animal symbolism, very much looking at key animals in Mesoamerica, animals that have had a special significance in Mesoamerica, not necessarily mm -hmm. in, in the Maya or in Highland Central Mexico with the Aztecs, but overall in Mesoamerica. So many of these animals are recurrent in, in different times, in different periods. They, they seem to be uh, particularly associated with seasonality, with the change of the seasons. So they're either associated to the wet season or to the dry season. And there are also mythological animals covered in the book. So what we have done is a, a selection of, of papers written by key authors, by some of the most distinguished scholars working mm. in Mesoamerica, so we are very lucky to have a book written by by people who have specialized in the different creatures that we are covering in the book in one okay. way or another. I would add that that some of some of the animals that are represented in the book 
are not ones that you know you would think of as being you know important mythologically such as the quail mm. the quail was sacrificed to the sun on a daily basis and Jeez. there there's a reason for that that's given in the book by Elena Maceto who has studied this imagery and she has found that the quail because of its spotted belly came to be rec- recognized or symbolically linked to the night sky hmm. because it looked like it had a starry sky on its body. Hmm. So to get the day to rise, the sun to rise, <laughs> you, you kill the night. <laughs> wow. Tough day for quails, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yes. <in America. laughs> um, can you guys, now the audience for this show is not necessarily archeologists. We have a lot of people from around the world with different backgrounds. Can you, Give your, you know, academic definition of symbolism real quick so we can understand and be on the same page with that. Yeah, well, uh, symbolism is basically what defines those creatures. What are the the Mm -hmm. characteristics? What are the traits um, that are symbolic of of those animals? For example, we were talking about seasonality and and how the, the change in the seasons is associated, for example, with snakes that change skin or also with toads and, and frogs that metamorphosis and that, that change their, their nature. So animals that have very specific symbols, for example, the hummingbird waking up at the beginning of the rainy season, coming from hibernation, mm-hmm when the rainy season starts. So these animals or um, that have connections with a specific realms, for example, the eagle with the sun or with the sky because they fly very high up. So they're closely to the sun, or so it seems. Okay. Other creatures that are more terrestrial, uh, for example, the, the jaguar has aspects to do with the earth and also to do with the underworld, but it depends on the context. So many of the traits of these animals are very specific to context. So the context dictates what we are looking at. If we find a female context or if we find animals that are associated with warfare, such as jaguars or eagles, or hawks or pumas. So all these animals that have bellicose aspects that are aggressive by nature, that they are, you know, animals that are very fear because there's no feline more Mm -hmm. aggressive in the Americas is, is the most aggressive, is the most powerful of all the creatures in the Americas, not only in Mesoamerica, but all over the Americas. One, one of the uh, ones that I would add that's that's an odd one is the hummingbird was was related to warfare and the the warlike sun god and you'd say well a tiny hum- hummingbird well why <laughs> they are apparently very aggressive hmm. towards each other's you know and and anything in their way and they they are obviously very speedy too mm-hmm. so the symbolism part comes from the fact that the animal behavior, or morphology, the way it looks, somehow or another stands for another concept. So, you know, right. that, that's what is a, is a symbol. 
Okay. Also, uh, in the case of the hummingbird, I would like to add that they're very territorial birds, as, as Susan said. But also, they define their territory and fight for their territory. So this is important during the expansion of the Aztecs and how much they defended their territory. So their associations with the behavior of, of the hummingbirds, these very small birds that also have certain features, like they feed themselves with the blood of mm. insects. And the association blood, you know, getting the protein, flying 400 kilometers without stopping. The only animal that can hover, that can fly upwards and downwards and uh, can go back is the only animal that has a, a very small heart that beats very, very fast. So it's all this number of of symbols that make this bird very special. It's also an American bird. It doesn't exist in, in other parts of the world. It is, and when it does, it, it's not native to, but to the Americas. So it, it makes this very small bird connected with more than one aspect to do with warfare, but also with the beginning of the rainy season, the color, the plumage, the, the green and the blue feathers, symbols of water, fertility, the lush vegetation at the beginning of the rainy season. So it's, it's all the combination, all these different elements that make the bird very attractive and, and symbolic of the most important Aztec god, Huitzilopochtli. Huitzilopochtli mm -hmm. as such means left-handed hummingbird. So uh, <laughs> the hummingbird in Nahuatl is called Huitzilin. So it's also, it's a hummingbird in, in Nahuatl, Huitzilin. So this the uh, tribal god of the Aztecs, the most important Aztec god, as well as, you know, the, the innovation in the Aztec period, in the Aztec pantheon. All right. Well, one of the chapters in the book is called How to Construct a Dragon for a Changing World, the Zoomorph on the Venus Platform at Chichen Itza. So speaking of possibly warfare or something like that, dragons usually symbolize something like that, but we'll talk about that. This chapter was written by Cecilia Klein and you dedicated the book to her. Tell us about that. Well, this is the result of a, a conference that Elizabeth Bacadano and I organized in 2019 to honor her at the Society for American Archaeology. And the papers were all so good that we decided, uh, actually, we were asked to do a volume on this. And her article, or her chapter rather, is, is one of the most interesting in the book because she has a very innovative approach to all sorts of scholarship. I mean, she's extremely knowledgeable about ethno-historical sources, which are often a main source of our information, meaning mm -hmm. the chroniclers who wrote at the time of the conquest and shortly thereafter and attempted to explain Mesoamerican religion. She ended up interpreting this creature that's best known from the Venus platform at Chichen Itza in Yucatan, but it clearly has a lot of central Mexican influence, meaning not Aztec because the Aztecs yet weren't defined. This is an early post-classic site, which means it's generally dated around 850 to 1150. And at, that, okay. at, at this site at Chichen Itza, this creature has elements of multiple animals, including a 
a serpent tongue coming out of its mouth and feathers that are clearly Quetzal feathers, claws that have been variously described as crocodilian or or bird-like, but they, her article has defined them more as perhaps images of, of a, a raptor of some sort. And she also recognized the nostrils as being those of a crocodile, which had never been mm. said before. So she had a lot of interesting new interpretations all woven together with classic period information from the Maya area and also post-classic information from central Mexico. So she, she did a major synthesis and it's certainly going to be, you know, one of the more important articles written uh, on Chichen Itza for quite a while. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I was just trying to look for my pictures on that. My wife and I visited Chichen Itza just a few years ago. And I remember that taking pictures of that. That was, it's really interesting. She thinks Um, it's a harpy eagle. The the eagle, eagle component is a harpy eagle, which was very important in the Maya area as well. Whereas in central Mexico, the eagle of preference was the golden eagle in terms of iconography. So she said in her article, she ended up saying that this seemed to be a synthesis of an attempt to talk to both the central Mexican cultures, which would have been Tula at the time in the early post-classic, and the people of, of Yucatan itself, because Yucatan was undergoing a drought that was a major drought. So she feels like it was an attempt to show some cross-cultural connections and and maybe a cry for hope at that point in time. Okay. Well, I think with that, let's go ahead and take a break. And when we get back, we will talk about both of your contributions to the book. Back in a minute. Hey, everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, (laughs) we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show. And I've got Susan Milbrath and Elizabeth Bacadano here. And we're talking about this book that they were editors on. And it's, again, linked in the show notes, Birds and Beasts of Ancient Mesoamerica, Animal Symbolism in the Post-Classic Period. And... 
I want to talk about your guys' contribution to the book because you both each have chapters here. So Elizabeth, why don't you tell us about yours first? Okay. Well, my chapter revolves around toads and frogs in post-classic Mesoamerica. These animals, these amphibians are very well represented throughout Mesoamerica, throughout the different chronological horizons from BC times right through to the conquest period. And of course, they continue to be important in some villages and in some places in Mexico where they still follow the traditions of honoring mountains and and climbing to see when the rains are going to come. So they're very closely associated with the change of the seasons. Mm. One, One of the aspects that I found interesting about the archaeology particularly was to be able to contribute to one of the most fascinating symposia that I've ever attended. This was organized by Leonardo Lopez Luján, the director of the Templo Mayor excavations. And he Mm. has been uh, working systematically since he was a student, even before he he went to study archeology. span And of course he's one of the leading archeologists in the Americas and one of the leading archeologists in the world. And I'm not just saying it out of nationalism, he he really has all the credentials. You you can look it up for yourself in academia. You can see his CV. It's one of the most impressive CVs that I've ever seen. But of course, he has been working at the Templo Mayor for 44 years. Well, the excavation started in 1978. And then he, he joined as a student working there when in his spare time, walking around the Templo Mayor, asking questions, a, a very inquisitive type of scholar from very early on. And he joined the Templo Mayor when Eduardo Matos Moctezuma, who incidentally started the excavations of the Templo Mayor, he had the vision to actually put together the most comprehensive archaeological project in in Mesoamerica using all kinds of specialists, biologists, zoologists, conservators, all types of experts participating in the excavations. So going back to the book, that I was invited to participate on. Leonardo, as, as the director of the, of the excavations, put together one of the most interesting symposium that I have attended, as I said earlier. It was all mm. to do with the animals that have been found in the excavations of the Templo Mayor. The context, where they have been found, what they mean, what kind of species they are. So it's not only just looking at the different animals, but it's actually looking at how often they appear and where do they appear. So in in that context, when he was putting together the conference, he asked me if I would like to contribute which was a great honor for me to participate with Mm. all my friends and colleagues of the Templo Mayor (laughs) excavation. So it was a great delight to do something with them. And I decided to write on frogs and toes. Unfortunately, even though this animal reproduces very easily in large amounts, 
and there are many frogs and many toes, there are not many skeletal remains found at the Templo Mayor excavations, the most important Aztec temple. So I I thought, well, I will ask all the right questions and I will be asking Lopez Luján how many frogs they have found, how many toads. To my surprise, there were only four amphibians found in the excavations for an animal mm-hmm. that even has a little temple facing the temple of Tlaloc the god of rain. Mm -hmm. It's it's very interesting that there are no skeletal remains. So this was something that through the work that I did, I had to use what's available. So uh, the only thing that I could find a lot of information was to do with garments, different types of jewelry where frogs are depicted or frogs and toads. Even some of the, as I said, some of the garments made of mother of pearl shaped as as frogs and uh, found on the side of, of the god of rain, Tlaloc. So it was very interesting to be able to work on what's available in the mm-hmm. material record. What was surprising was to see that uh, there was one particular symbol that appears in several representations of frogs and is the water symbol. So the water symbol is located on the stomach of frogs. So that particular symbol is important because obviously water is is important for agriculture, particularly Mm -hmm. for agricultural societies. So when you actually see the water symbol and where it appears, I started asking myself, why this particular symbol and why is it placed on the stomach as anywhere else? So I started looking at the biology of amphibians and realized that frogs and toads sit on on puddles. When the rain comes, they go and sit on, on these little puddles or, or, or ponds that have little water to absorb the water. So they drink water hmm. through their seed patch. They, they actually absorb the water there. And of course, the Aztec Square, the great at observing nature, at looking yeah. at what happened. And they put together the, the water symbol with what these creatures did and how they behaved. Mm. So I discovered by, by reading books on, on biology and zoology that these creatures actually have the, the seed patch very well localized and is to do with the consumption of, of water. So I put together what is found in the sculptures, where you find those sculptures, and I also looked at the behavior in, in biology. But that's only one of the aspects of the paper. Another yeah. aspect that I was very interested in was at, at looking how certain offerings found in the excavations of Templo Mayor have different layers and and those layers have an important symbolism. Sometimes it's connected with, with water 
and and everything that belongs in the realm of water. For example, uh, you get frogs and you get fish and you have sand and creatures that belong in watery environments. So what is interesting as well is to see um, that this particular level of the offerings is depicted in sculptures of reclining figures called Chakmol. Chakmol is, is, is the name given to men who hold vessels in their midsection that seem to be reclined. And if you were to lift those sculptures representing reclined men, if you were to lift them up, you would find that on the underside, there is a carving exactly of the same <laughs> creatures that you find in the offerings. So you have frogs, you have <laughs> fish, you have water indicated as wavy lines. You also have different types of, of shells, conch shells. And of course, in the excavations of the Templo Mayor, you, you can look at what type of shells and how many and where do they come from? Do they come from the Pacific or from the Atlantic? So the, the amount of information is unique, is, is incredibly thorough mm-hmm. using the most modern techniques. And so I was, I was able to compare what has been described by Leonardo Lopez Luján in his major work on the offerings of the Templo Mayor, which he published both in Spanish and in English. And, and I saw what different levels brought and what different levels contained. So it was interesting to see uh, not only the symbols that you you find on the sculptures in in an obvious manner, but also some that are hidden. You obviously need drawings, and those drawings had been carried out, and we can compare and contrast what is carved on those sculptures with the offerings themselves. So I did okay. archaeology and compare it with a sculpture. So I tried to be innovative using not only what exists in books, but looking at the material culture and how this gives us different information using different methods. So it's, it's yeah. Susan was talking about the ethnohistorical sources. And of course, now we have a very rich corpus of archaeology, mainly thanks to the ongoing excavations that started in 1978. So it's, it's one of the most extraordinary excavations before the excavations of 1978, all the Aztec excavations were rescue excavations. And this, with Eduardo Matos Moctezuma, he started a new trend of making all the excavations in a systematic, orderly way. So that's one one of the aspects. But of course, I was was talking earlier, Mm -hmm. there is also observation of of what these creatures do. And of course, in the dry season, frogs and and toads hide in the earth and and some of them stay buried in the earth until Mm -hmm. the rains come and they, they put their head 
faced up, looking at, <laughs> say, looking at the sky, obviously they're buried in the earth. So looking mm-hmm. up, the representations of the earth are also always depicted with a face looking up. So there's the okay. association frogs with with the rain, but also the transition, what happens in the dry season, uh, uh, metamorphosis that they undergo, and and of course uh, the aspects of the earth. The they they're very closely associated with rain, but also with the Lord of the earth, Lord and Lady Tlaltecutli of the earth, and and of course in the dry season. They really wait for the rain to come. When the rain starts, then they start mating and mm-hmm. and their behavior changes completely. So this is one of the aspects. And the question still remains, why so few of these toads and frogs in the skeletal uh, remains? Mm-hmm. And there are many frogs and toads throughout Mesoamerica. So we have to continue searching for them. They must be somewhere because they were also eaten. They were consumed. There were different festivals and and so on. I just got to say, as we're ending segment two here, it is one more example of, and we talk about this on other shows in the Archaeology Podcast Network. I've mentioned it before, but a lot of people look at archaeology and think, well, it's all just, you know, digging and, and probably dusty old history books, right? And something like that. But it really is cross-disciplinary in order to really understand because the people that we're often studying I mean, had an incredible knowledge of the world around them, much more so than people do typically today. I mean, we don't pay attention to anything outside of our TVs and our, you know, and our and our stereos and things like that. And it's just it's just amazing the knowledge that they had of the world and how they applied that and used it and and, you know, put it in their symbolism, for example, like you guys are discussing. And it's just I don't know. It's fascinating. They weren't savages by any means. <laughs> no, <laughs> so, not at all. The opposite. No, definitely not. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, let's take a break and we'll come back on the other side and talk about Susan's contribution to the book back in a minute. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show. This is the third and final segment. And Susan, I want to go to your chapter now. We didn't quite have time to do it last time, so we're going to talk about it now. Your chapter was called Animal Symbolism in the Calendar Almanacs of the Codex Borgia and links to post-classic imagery in Mexico. And we actually did, I think it was around this time last year, we did a whole podcast on this show on calendars. You know, it was the end of the year and, you know, dealing with daylight savings and stuff like that. And it was interesting. And, and the calendars of the Maya are just 
fascinating and, and the whole Mesoamerican area. So let's hear what your chapter was about. Well, my culture area in this case is central Mexico, although I've done a okay. lot with Maya. One of the interesting things about central Mexico is their calendar is very similar to hmm. the Maya, but they they ended up recording month dates that were that were not the same as the Maya. So we hmm. sometimes have to try and piece together exactly what time periods they were referring to. So this chapter, I attempted to show that a certain section of, I would think, the most famous codex from central Mexico that dates to the pre-conquest time before the conquest, the Codex Borgia, how it records actual dates in the calendar that can be called real-time dates. And with Mm. that information that had has only recently been noticed, shall we say, in the last 15 years or so, people have started to realize that the what are called calendar round dates can be placed in real time. So with that in mind, I've, I've worked on the calendar inscriptions of the Codex Borgia to try and find out exactly what time periods, what events are shown. And in this particular chapter, I focused on a set of pages that are called a directional almanac because it, it shows essentially four scenes that are each each one a different scene associated with a different cardinal direction, the classic, you know, north, you know, etc. When when we got to the point where we could start to read the calendar glyphs, these pages have specific dates that fall in what is the last month of the Aztec calendar. Now the Codex Borgia was was painted in a neighboring community in the Puebla Tlaxcala area rather than in the Valley of the Mexico where the Aztecs lived, but they shared a similar calendar. And so we're able to say that these scenes all relate to the last month of the Aztec year, also known from Puebla Tlaxcala area, because we have the Relaciones de Tlaxcala that Mm. tell you about the calendar. So Knowing that, it's interesting that they all show scenes showing the erection of a world tree as if this this belonged to a specific kind of world renewal ceremony like our new year. Mm. And indeed, when we go to the Aztec calendar, the last month of the year is Kali, also has the erection of world trees and the concept of world renewal. So that allowed me to kind of set these pages in the context of what I would say would be chronological time. But then I became interested in the amount of uh, iconography that refers to animals. There's a lot of animal sacrifice. There are animals represented as attacking other animals or attacking, in some cases, humans. So in terms of the four pages, one of the most important images Mm -hmm. is is essentially decapitated quetzals on a tree (laughs) of sacrifice. Quetzals on flowering vines uh, around a jeweled tree, which all are associated with the east, and a fire serpent with a fire drill. Well, actually, Iskali was the month in which they drilled a new fire every year, you know, to symbolically renew the the year. So we had all these scenes that can now be placed in some kind of symbolic context. Crocodiles, jaguars, eagles with feathered serpents. And in one case, the eagle is trying to take a a rabbit out of the jaws of the feathered serpent, which would seem just very weird, you know, mm. since, yeah. you know, it's just, it's just hard to explain unless you understand the symbolism of central Mexican iconography. 
wherein the rabbit is often a representative of the moon. Mm. And the feathered serpent is often a representative of the planet Venus. And the eagle is often a representative of the sun. So in that case, it seems to be an astronomical images image. But more, more important, these animals also turned out to be central to the central Mexican calendar, shared again by Tlaxcala and, and the Aztecs. And half of the day signs that are part of a unique 260-day calendar refer to animals. And so the first actually day sign in the series of 20 day signs that were used repeatedly with 13 numbers, 13 times 20, 260. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with the first animal is the crocodile, which stands for the first of the day signs. And then the lizard is the fourth A serpent, a feathered serpent, is the fifth. A deer is the seventh. A rabbit, the eighth. A dog is the tenth. And a monkey, the eleventh. And a jaguar, the fourteenth. And the fifteenth is an eagle. And the sixteenth, a vulture. So with those animals in mind, I, I attempted to delve into the symbolism of each of those animals to see why did they become essentially used in the calendar? What What is their importance symbolically? Mm in the central Mexican area. And what'd you find out? Yeah, I I ended up coming to some, I think, you know, interesting conclusions. The, the jaguar, not only as an earth symbol, but also can be lunar. He's paired with the eagle often in iconography as a symbol of warfare, because those were the two highest classes of, of costuming that were awarded to the to the warriors, much as we put bars and stars on our warriors, they had costumes that that reflected their status in the community of warriors. Hmm. The deer is also one that's among the calendar symbols, but not an aggressive man, animal at all. But mm-hmm. he he is that animal is used in in metaphors in other sources, ethnohistorical sources of. Timidity and animals that fear other animals, and not right. you know, not surprisingly, yeah. So they all these animals turn out to have multiple levels of symbolism that is found throughout their iconography. And in my, I did do one other chapter, the closing chapter, just to try to make sense of it all, shall we say? And mm-hmm. in that chapter, I I do include you know notes from contributions throughout the volume, but I also attempt to to show that the overriding principle of the animal imagery is not necessarily astronomy. And I'm known for astronomy, so I'm I'm sure some some folks thought, oh, there's going to be a lot of astronomy here. (laughs) No, it turns Mm -hmm. out when when I delved into these animals that a lot of it has to do with close observation of nature and the importance of these animals as symbols. For instance, the crocodile became a symbol of the earth because actually what they do when they lay eggs is they make a little model of the earth by mounding up earth around the, around the water in which they're usually residing. They make a mound and they mm. lay their eggs in that mound. So they've created this visual image of the earth. And then, of course, just seeing them floating in the water in a community such as Mesoamerica that has water on both sides, you know, you would naturally see that as an image of the earth. And, uh, well, I could go on longer, but I hope people will buy the book (laughs) (laughs) and, and, and take a look at, at how many symbols of close observation of nature end up in the Mesoamerican iconography. 
Awesome. Well, with that, I think we will end the show because we're out of time. And again, the book is Birds and Beasts of Ancient Mesoamerica, Animal Symbolism in the Post-Classic Period. And you can find the link to that in the show notes and then hopefully maybe pick up a copy and check it out. Lots of good stuff inside of there. And as we mentioned in the last book podcast that we did, these are the kinds of things that, I mean, it's not like a, a book of fiction or something that you read cover to cover. You can actually jump around a little bit if you want to, because they're, they're chapters written by other people and they're independent. So if you find something interesting that you want to read first, go ahead and, and you can take a look at that. That's one of the nice things about the way books like this are written. So with that, I think we will say thank you to Susan and Elizabeth for coming on the show. And we hope that everybody goes and checks out the book. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you, Chris. All right. See you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.